Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Pockin or Anna Pockin, depending on whichever name you prefer. And welcome to my first ever episode on this podcast, NeuroPM. I'm so excited because I've been wanting to get this podcast started for so long. It was actually supposed to be starting like two weeks ago, but my phone died. It's a whole thing. I don't really want to get into it, but I decided I'm just going to get in. I'm just going to go ahead and start. I still haven't gotten my phone back or fixed yet. Um, so I'm actually using my laptop right now. The quality is not super awesome. I promise the quality is not always going to be like this. It's going to be better, but I just don't have a microphone. I don't have my phone, so I'm just using my laptop. But I promise that future episodes, like their quality, their audio is going to be much better. So I apologize for the quality on here, but I hope it's not too bad <laughs> that you literally want to leave I mean if, I guess if you want to leave I can't stop you but <laughs> I do hope you guys stay because I'm really excited about starting this episode and just starting this podcast in general um so yeah a little bit about me is that I'm a neuroscience major freshman in my freshman year just I'm basically studying molecular and cellular neuroscience and I'm on the pre-med track so like I said, I'm a freshman, so I basically know about the same amount of neuroscience as you guys do, unless you guys are in further studies for neuroscience, or, me, or unless you guys like kind of know a lot about neuroscience already, then I probably, you probably know more than me, um, so please don't judge me, <laughs> I'm just kidding, you can judge me all you want, but yeah, basically, I know little to nothing and I'm gonna get that out there like right now. I'm still a student. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a tutor. I'm not a professor. I'm not an expert by any means. I am just a freshman student right now who is just interested in learning about neuroscience. And so basically this podcast, I created it in order to learn about different, just just different characteristics or different parts about the brain or different parts that affect the brain and are also just overall, I guess, health um, and basically learning about the neuroscience behind it and also just about how it affects us as individuals and as a population. And so that's kind of what my podcast is going to be about. It's just basically learning more about the field little by little, just about different tasks that I like to learn, like not tasks, just about little topics that I like to, I would want to learn about, or I hope to also um, have interviews with people who know a lot more about the field than I do, about people who are in different um, career paths within the field of neuroscience or medicine. I would hopefully, you know, like to talk to more people who know a lot more about neuroscience than I do, or about the world of medicine um, than I do. So yeah, and I was really scared to start this podcast because I was thinking I'm still just a student. I don't know anything. I feel like this is going to be really dumb, and people are going to think this is pretty stupid. But then I figured, you know what? I can do whatever the hell I want, and I want to start a podcast where I get to learn about whatever I want and I want to learn about neuroscience and I want to learn more about the field and I want to learn more about the brain and I also have another podcast power of words if you're not familiar with it it's basically just a self-reflection podcast where I just talk about my life and I realized 
I've had a podcast before, so I can do it again. And I'm sure there are other people who want to learn about, you know, neuroscience, who want to learn about the brain. I know I'm not the only one who is fascinated by the brain. So I really hope that, you know, this podcast is enjoyable. I'm really excited to start it, even though I was very scared, but I thought, let's just jump right into it and just do it. Um, So yeah, and just know that I do encourage you guys to do your own research alongside with my episode because I know that I, like I said, am not an expert. I am just a student and I am just presenting what I found through different sources like books or online or just based on whatever I know. But it's not, it may not always be accurate or may not always be true so if there's something you're a little bit like "Mm, I don't know if there's something you just want to learn more about I encourage you guys to do your own research Um, and if you also find that something that I said just wasn't accurate or true please let me know and I'll be happy to kind of just look into it and like fix it if I can or at least like clear that up because also I want to learn as much as I can too, and so when you guys are calling me out on stuff, it helps me learn as well. Um, So yeah, I just hope we can learn together. So with all of that said, I know that was a really long intro, but with all of that said, let's go ahead and get into burnout. So what is burnout? Burnout is defined as a state of emotional or mental or often physical exhaustion from prolonged or repeated stress. It often comes from work, but it can also be in other areas of your life, such as parenting or caretaking, relationships, friendships, etc. And in the medical world, whether or not this term should be applied to areas of our lives outside of professionalism tends to be a bit controversial, but we'll kind of get into that later in the episode. And so, like I said, it's more of an occupational term, but it can affect other populations as well. And so that's with that. Um, I did look into some statistics just regarding populations of high school students and um, undergrad students and people who went into further studies as well as employees. And so let's, I would like to start off with how burnout um, statistics looked in employees just because it is more of an occupational term. So let's kind of get into burnout in employees. So there was a newly released report that uh, reported nearly 59% of American or U.S. workers experienced moderate moderate levels of burnout or higher, which is an increase from the 52% reported in 2021, which is about the same level as 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, which this is according to the 2022-23 AFLAC Workforces Report. And in the same report, it was also shown that millennials are currently the most burned out generation, while Gen Zers seem to burn out faster than any other generation, as they went from 47% to a high 58% in one year. And burned out employees are more likely to seek a new job and just new employment. And it's a recognized medical condition affecting 70 to 77% of employees. Also, a lot of the time, money, people think that money is something that kind of um, has a big factor in determining whether or not burnout is going to occur. And 
Actually, there was a statistic that showed there was only a 6% difference in burnout rates between employees earning $30,000 a year to $100,000 a year. And so that kind of shows that actually money does not cure burnout. But still with that, you know, just continuing on from that, um, it was also shown in another study that with increased flexibility and with increased leadership assistance or at least improved leadership in assistance, it can decrease burnout by 50%. And so now let's kind of get into burnout in students right now, specifically just high school students. So there has been a study that showed consistently that high school students are more stressed than they developmentally should be. These factors just include them having to manage classes or sports or clubs or volunteer hours or other responsibilities that they may have at home or with their social lives or any other circumstances. 51% of teens claim that someone tells them they seem stressed or burned out once a month. 42% of American teens reported not doing enough to manage their stress. And 13% claimed that they never did. This is all according to the American Psychology Association. And regarding undergrad students, there was a study in 2021 at Boston University that showed that more than half of the 33,000 surveyed college students experienced anxiety or depression, and 83% of those respondents claimed that mental health did, in fact, hurt their academic performance. So now that we've kind of briefly gone over, you know, people just in high school or undergrad, I do kind of want to go into people, the stats of people that went into further studying, such as med students, law students, grad students. And so with med students, research showed that 50% of medical students experienced symptoms of burnout. And another study showed that medical students are more susceptible to burnout than their non-med peers. These could be due to a long number, a long list of factors such as long hours of studying, essays that need to be written, a change in dynamics of medicine, and competition that all add to an insurmountable amount of pressure. But still, medical students are being told to simply push through it. And according to American Medical Student Association, medical students are three times more likely to die by suicide. And in a 2014 academic medicine study, it was shown that 60% experienced burnout and more than 50% experienced depression and 8% experienced suicidal ideation. Many trainees know that they're in crisis, but only one third actually reach out for help. And this is primarily because they're afraid of what it'll do to their careers. And along with this is that 33% of medical students claim symptoms of alcohol abuse and 70% of medical students report feeling significant levels of stress. And so let's kind of dive into that a little bit. So you'll see that medical students, like they'll feel that pressure of feeling like they have to hide their problems, they have to hide their struggles because they genuinely, they literally feel like people's lives are in their hands. And this is something that they've worked 
for years for to be able to become a doctor or a surgeon or wherever they want to be you know these are people who have spent years learning to get into this profession and also when you're in it, it's still a high level of stress because you're still also understanding that people's lives are literally in your hands and I think this also is something that law students experience as well people's futures are literally in their hands their lives are in their hands so law students and really anyone but specifically medical students and law students feel that pressure of having other people's lives just under their watch and it's a lot of pressure and it makes people feel like their issues their struggles aren't valid and not only that like not not is it only an issue of not being heard but it's also an issue of being so scared to speak up because of what it can do to your careers because you know in this world even right now as much as we're working to fight it there's still so much negative stigma around the world of mental health this realm and people are still scared to speak out about their struggles because they're worried that it's going to keep them from practicing it's going to you know it's going to end up hurting them especially since we know that really any field is also a lot of politics the way people view you is important and it can sound superficial but it's in the end it really is just a fact and it's true and sometimes when people struggle with mental health or they have these struggles it can make people view you in a certain light and in a way it makes people feel like they their struggles are something that just hurts them and their careers and so with that said I'd like to kind of go into the stats of law students so it was stated that 96% of law students reported feeling significant stress and according to Bloomberg Law, a survey with respondents from 614 in-house and law firm attorneys claimed that in the fourth quarter of 2021, many felt burnt out 52% of the time on average. 46% reported feeling worsening well-being. 70% who reported this decline in well-being also experienced burnout. And with decreased well-being, it also leads to decreased job satisfaction, leading to the increased incidence of substance abuse or increased percentage of disrupted sleep, anxiety, um, personal relationship issues, depression, physical health issues, workaholic tendencies, heavier workload and responsibilities, focus on focus or work slash administrating tasks, um, and just other various health issues among others and over the course of law school law students reported depression rates from less than 10 percent to an overwhelming 40 percent 42 percent in 2016 um, in the in a 2016 study felt they needed mental health counseling but really only half actually sought it out because they faced the same narrative that medical students um, also faced or they typically faced where they felt like they had to just suck it up because like I said that's the narrative that most lawyers believe they had to 
follow due to just this negative mental health stigma. And in a 2014 study, 25% were at risk for alcoholism. And in the same study, 21% of students reported suicidal ideation in their lifetimes with 6% reporting suicidal ideation um, just in previous years. And 20 to 40% of law students have psych psychological dysfunction after law school. And a lot of this is a lot of these factors just continue contributing to lawyer burnout. And I mean, these factors really can include just the pressure of one, the school itself keeping up with the grades. You know, especially if you um, want to be a lawyer, you know that you have to have good stats. It's a, like I said, it's about politics a lot of the times. You have to have good stats. And a lot of, for a lot of people, that means having great grades, is like great grades, going to a great school, um, or going to a top school, and trying to just go through the competition of being maybe one of the best. So then they have a higher chance of achieving success. And even when, during their careers, just having the lives of other people in your hands that's also a lot of pressure. And so people feel like they have to um, almost neglect their emotional health in order to just drive their ambition and just achieve success like they want to. And so with that said, let's kind of go into graduate students. So in a study, there was shown that 45% of graduate students had emotional or stress-related problems. 58% had a colleague with similar past year problems, 46% felt overwhelmed frequently or all of the time, and 27% of graduate students who felt stressed reported that it negatively impacted their academic performance. And so now that I'm kind of wrapping up these stats, I do feel like it should be noted that some of these stats are near the time of COVID-19 um, or the pandemic, it's just during this time, but the overall trends still work with the general consensus. And also it doesn't really talk much about other possible factors such as gender or age or economic or um, I guess socioeconomic status. But honestly, I don't think I'm really gonna go into that much in this episode. So if you guys do want a little bit more um, research, I suggest maybe looking into that yourselves or I can also I can, if you guys want, I can totally do it too. I can research and maybe make an episode on it. I'm just focusing specifically on those factors and how that might have contributed to this. But yeah, just I definitely think that if you guys want to learn more about this, you guys can definitely kind of look into it, research a little bit. Also, I encourage you guys always to research because I don't know everything. Literally, I'm just a freshman studying neuroscience like I know basically about the same amount you guys do and so I'm just learning alongside with you guys and I don't want you guys to feel like oh whatever she says is true like I am just I am basically just kind of talking about what I've learned but like I said not like I said but at the end of the day science really just isn't an exact thing it's something that changes over time it's all a lot of it is theory based and so it changes over time what we know changes over time 
or what we think we know. And so some of what I might be saying might not be true. So I would also suggest looking into it yourselves. But for me, this is just a way to kind of be like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's see what we can learn right now. Um, but if I'm wrong, you guys are always welcome to just call me out on it. But yeah, anyway, let's kind of go ahead and continue. But um, yeah, I mean, I think just with these stats, I think it can be argued that burnout in different fields are each filled with different types of students and learners and that each group can handle different things and various amounts of stress. But at the end, we're all human. We're flawed and imperfect. We're not robots. And I think that the biggest thing about this is just that we need to talk about it more in different fields. And in general, I think we need to make people more aware of this issue so then we can find a way to better support it. Um, because I think still there's a lot of stigma around it. And a lot of people aren't getting the help that they need. And it's also just harmful for other people as well, not just the individuals directly affected, but the ones indirectly affected. So I think just the more we talk about it, the more we learn about it, then I think we can all figure out a way to just find a way to combat it. So by now it's probably becoming clear that burnout is a real issue for any person in any field, but a lot of people just don't see it that way. Psychologist Herbert Frudenberg coined the term burnout in 1974 as, quote, a loss of motivation, growing sense of emotional depletion, and cynicism, end quote. When he observed volunteers at a free clinic in New York City, he observed them as formerly idealistic mental health workers who over time became depleted and weary and ended up actually resenting their patients and the clinic. In mainstream medicine, Burnout or burnout syndrome is now recognized as a real medical disorder. Burnout syndrome is a, it's the process of psychological reactions to long-term work-related stress influenced by individual and contextual factors. And according to the ICD-11 or the International Classification of Diseases, the 11th revision, burnout is included among factors influencing health status or contact with health services in section Problems Associated with Employment or Unemployment, code QD85. The World Health Organization described burnout by three dimensions. One, feelings of energy depletion and exhaustion. Two, increased mental distance from your job and feelings of negativism and cynicism related to your job. And three, decreased professional efficacy. Other symptoms that you might see are also just trouble sleeping, short temper, drowning in work and stress, exhaustion, depression, no time for non-work related tasks, poor performance, headaches, stomach aches, and reduced creativity, and of course, so much more. In the ICD-11, burnout is viewed as a, an occupational phenomenon specifically to professional context, not classified as a medical condition. And this essentially means that it is not applied to describe non-occupational areas of life, or it is, and if people use it in that sense, then it is not really classified as a medical condition. Mayo Clinic also adds, adds on to this as they um, call burnout, or they claim burnout is, quote, a special type of work-related stress, a state of physical or emotional exhaustion that 
also involves a sense of reduced accomplishment and loss of personal identity, end quote, and specifies that it is not a medical diagnosis. So really, whether or not burnout is classified as a medical condition or not can be considered a bit controversial, but regardless, it still is an issue and it's often surrounded by other issues in the the mental health realm, such as depression, anxiety, stress, and so much more. So let's kind of get into how burnout actually affects the brain on a physical level. So for one, it erodes the prefrontal cortex. So what is the prefrontal cortex? It's the cerebral cortex, which is the outer layer that lies on top of your cerebrum. The cerebrum is the largest area of your brain that divides the brain into two hemispheres. And that covers the front, sorry, your prefrontal cortex covers the front part of the frontal lobe. Its functions include planning complex cognitive behavior, your personality expression, decision-making, moderating social behavior, and its executive functions include abilities to differentiate among conflicting thoughts, meaning determining good and bad, better and best, same and different. It also is good with determining or figuring out future consequences of your current actions, working toward a goal, prediction of outcomes, and so many more functions. Now, this erosion, this thinning of gray matter, it happens normally with aging, but it actually happens more rapidly in people who are stressed for prolonged periods of time. Now, another way that it affects the brain is it enlarges the amygdala. So your amygdala is the almond-shaped mass of gray matter inside both cerebral hemispheres. It plays a key role in how we assess and respond to environmental threats and challenges by evaluating the emotional importance of sensory information and finding appropriate um, response mechanisms. It regulates emotions like fear and aggression, and it ties these emotional meanings to memories and reward processing and decision-making. When it's stimulated, more aggressive behaviors are executed. And when stressed, the amygdala sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus. This is according to the Harvard Health publications of Harvard Medical School. So the amygdala, basically a really big mechanism in it is something that you're probably familiar with, and it's the fight or flight mechanism. The amygdala is basically the command center. It It communicates with the rest of the body through the nervous system so people have energy to either fight or flee. It's responsible for the outward or external physical reactions such as increased heart rate or heightened senses, deeper intake of oxygen, or that rush of adrenaline. Also, the stress hormone cortisol is released. Cortisol restores energy lost in the response, and when a stressful event is over, cortisol levels fall and your body essentially just returns back to stasis. And according to the Dartmouth Undergrad Journal of Science, it also regulates blood sugar levels in your cells. And it also has a utilitarian value in your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is basically just where your memories are stored and processed. But when you're under chronic stress, it makes too much cortisol and it makes more than 
it can be released. If there's too much, it wears down your brain's ability to function properly, and it also disrupts your synapse regulation, which means that there's a loss of sociability and avoidance of interactions with other people. And stress increases the size of the amygdala as it is overstimulated, so it makes the brain more receptive to stress. But don't worry, with all the uplifting stuff that I've said so far on this podcast, there is more good news. And I'm not being sarcastic, there actually is good news. Although it can feel nearly impossible and overwhelming, um, and it can feel almost as if it isn't possible, recovery is in fact possible. There was a study with mice in 2018, and basically... It showed that cognitive behavioral therapy for burnout reduced the size of your amygdala and returned the prefrontal cortex to its pre-stress levels. So that basically just means we're resilient. Our brains don't stop changing once it's fully recovered, despite popular belief. And we've always been told that after a certain age, um, especially somewhere in our 20s or early 20s, we're told that our brains stop developing. But that once again, that does not mean our brains stop changing. Our brains can change to adapt to meet our demands placed on it. And this is called neuroplasticity. It's the ability to adapt. With increased neuroplasticity, it means that it's easier to perform well in new and challenging tasks. You can actually increase plasticity by learning new things. And it forces the brain to make new connections that when confronted with the challenge, it can produce a more creative solution. And the brain actually benefits from all learning equally. So you can really learn anything and you're still building up and you're still increasing your neuroplasticity. So this can include learning a new instrument or a new language, maybe a new ho- you pick up a new hobby or a skill, um, learn a new recipe. Just make sure it's something that feels fulfilling to you and not something that will, you know, kind of add to the stress or add to the burnout. Having accountability partners or maybe one, um, it's really great because it will help motivate you to succeed and push you. You'll perform better because our brains drive us to impress others. When we're working with people who will judge our work, our brains adapt to this increased social pressure to lead to increased performance. It also minimizes the fear of being lonely. The pain of social isolation in our brain is actually registered almost identically to physical pain. So it's good to have a good support network of people interested in your success. And so accountability partners can just look like having someone check check on you periodically or maybe working in shared spaces or just joining groups or support groups. And so another way is also creating a reward system. So there was an experiment done where um, basically people used imaging for, um, they put people in different groups. It was, they called it go-getter brains and slacker brains. So it was basically, well, it's pretty self-explanatory. And so basically what they did was um, they tried to figure out some way to create a reward system for Um, both groups for the same goal and so basically for the go-getter brains it was shown that high levels of pleasure with progress which is a reward um, motivated them to continue on to new and larger goals and for the slacker brains it 
really only lit up in small areas, which showed that they had a natural lack of excitement, which decreased motivation. And so what you can, we can learn from this is just to figure out how to motivate yourself as it fulfills that brain's natural love of reward. But yeah, who knows, maybe that kind of had a little bit of a contribution to the whole academic validation concept on, you know, Pinterest or social media or whatever, but we don't have to talk about that right now. Anyway, um, so the second to last thing, but I think is probably one of the most important things is just to nourish your brain and your body. Literally just let yourself relax, um, get creative. And researchers found that people are best able to solve issues immediately following some state of creative brainstorming and daydreaming. Daydreaming actually gives the unconscious mind time to sort through information we have consumed during activity and basically make connections between them. And so it's actually really productive um, when you're transitioning between tasks or maybe you're taking breaks. So when you're daydreaming, maybe write down these thoughts or ideas. And another thing is just a position of sleep. This sounds really weird. It surprised me actually, but 40% of people sleep in fetal position and actually subconsciously we take up less space when we feel less capable so try a more expansive position basically just stretch before getting up or you can even do both i think both are great um (laughs) but yeah and then the last one is literally just do less it kind of goes with the whole let yourself relax thing and also the creativity thing you people literally the most creative people, I think, actually need to be able to have time to do nothing and to just think in order to actually let that creative creativity flow. And I think that really applies to anybody. And as well said by David Allen, quote, you can do anything, but not everything. So don't feel guilty for, you know, relaxing, for letting yourself do nothing. It's just part of your brain's feedback loop mechanism applying the notion that we're lazy when really the term laziness was really only used to put people to work for others. It was especially used, you know, even in times of slavery. So that's kind of the way I kind of see it sometimes. I feel guilty for relaxing and then I remember that it's just a notion that people created, like I said, to put people to work for them so yeah anyway this is my episode thank you guys so much for watching and i'm really sorry again about the audio i know it's not super great and i promise it's not going to be like this in future episodes my audio is usually a lot better but other than that i really hope you guys enjoy the content i really enjoyed making this episode and this podcast so i'm really excited for everything else that's to come and Yeah, thank you guys so much, and I'll see you next time.